You're listening to the Together Church Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on Together Church, you can visit our website at wearetogether.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We're going to open your word. And I just pray that the words that we read today would just leap off of this page and right in our hearts. And that life change would happen today in this place. And we, uh, we come with expectation today, God, that you will move in this place. And we pray these things in your name. Amen and amen. You guys can be seated. Hey, we've been in the book of Ruth. If you haven't been with us, uh, book right in the middle, of, well, right in the beginning of the Old Testament. And um, what we've been looking at is studying this whole book verse by verse and really trying to get the overarching theme of what it is that we can pull and learn from the book of Ruth. Let me recap you just a, a little bit real quick. In, in re- week one, we we learned of this family, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, who were in Bethlehem, famine hits, they have no food, they're in the promised land, they're in the place that God told them to be, but the famine scared them, they got uncomfortable, and they took off. And when they took off, they just didn't go anywhere, they chose to go to Moab. Seems like a nice place, the only problem is God was very clear in the book of Deuteronomy, that the Israelites were not allowed to go into Moab or even associate because the Moabites were Satan worshipers. And they did not worship or even acknowledge the God Jehovah of which the Israelites worshipped. And so it was a place that was off limits. So Elimelech, fearing death from the famine, leaves the promise and he takes his family into Moab. It it doesn't take long. Elimelech passes away. He dies. We don't know why, but he dies. The two sons that Naomi had, they get married. Things seem like they're looking up. Things are great. Problem is, the two two sons die, leaving Naomi with nothing but her two daughter-in-laws. After spending 10 years in Moab, she decides it's time to go back home to my people. And so Ruth and Orpah, her sister-in-law, say, we'll we'll go with you. Daughter-in-law say, we'll go with you. And so they begin on this journey back home to Bethlehem, back to the promise. And on the way, she stops them, realizing that when I get back, I'm going to face shame. I'm going to feel guilty about everything. I'm going to be embarrassed because I left to go achieve this dream, but I'm coming back empty-handed. So she turns to her daughter-in-laws and she says, you don't have to go with me. There's nothing there. The weight that I've got to carry shouldn't be the weight that you have to carry. So just return and go back to Moab. Go back home. Let me go face this on my own. So Oprah says, okay, I like that idea. I'm going back to Moab. But Ruth says, no, no, I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you lay your head, I will lay my head. But I'm in this. I'm committed to this. And so they go back. And in week one, we said that that we got to choose obedience over comfort all day, every day. That we can get into situations that are comfortable, but just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's of God. And it can put us in really bad situations. This is why Elimelech leaves a place of promise for a place that is desolate and spiritually dry. And it ends up costing them not just spiritually, but it costed them physically as well. So obedience over comfort. And then last week, we talked about how God works behind the scenes. They get back to Bethlehem. And the only way that they could eat, because they didn't have anything. No one was there to take care of them. And, and all they could do was get behind the harvesters. When they were harvesting this wheat, when the wheat pieces would fall off, we, we learned last week that the Mosaic Law said that they were to leave 
these pieces of wheat on the ground so that the widows and the orphans and the foreigners could come and scoop up what was left. And so she's literally working all day, getting what's left and what falls off the wagon, day in and day out, taking one small break we found in the Bible, and she's bringing this, what she has, back to Naomi. And this is what they're surviving off of. While she's doing this, she catches the eye of the owner of the field, Boaz. Now, out of the thousands of fields that are in Bethlehem, she ends up in the field of Boaz. And we said last week, the reason that happened is because God is always working behind the scenes. you believe that? Always working behind the scenes. It wasn't by chance or by accident or by coincidence that she ends up in Boaz's field. Well, her, what she's doing is working. He starts asking questions. Who is this lady? Why is she doing this? And so eventually, her work ethic, and I believe she, she was a beautiful woman, and that caught his attention. And he said she needs to come and have dinner and have lunch. He invited her in for a lunch. And at lunch, he gives her this big meal. She has all this food to eat, so much it says that she took leftovers home. She goes, takes her leftovers, goes back in the field to continue working to gather whatever grain she could. And in the process, Boaz says, listen, I want you to intentionally throw some off the wagon. But don't embarrass her. Don't call her out. I want her protected. Make sure nobody gets to her. I want her protected. And this is what happens. He protects her. He makes sure that she's taken care of. And this is where we're going to pick up in, in chapter 3 today is there's something kindling between Boaz and Ruth. Okay? But before we can do that, I need to give you three concepts that we need to understand so that we can fully grasp this passage. The first thing is, I want, I want to focus on the name Sadie Hawkins, okay? Maybe you've heard that name referred to as a Sadie Hawkins dance. Anybody familiar with the Sadie Hawkins dance? Okay. All right, girls ask the guys, right? If, if you know, there's, there's generations that you experienced it, and there's generations like mine we never experienced, but there was Reliant K who wrote the song called Sadie Hawkins Dance, if you hadn't listened to it. And if you do listen to it, just be ready to, to like, shake your head. It's, it's punk rock. It's... it's uh, Maybe we'll do it next weekend. We'll sing that song together and have low attendance the next weekend. But I always thought it was interesting. The girls asked the guys to go to the dance, which I would have always been down for that in high school because I didn't like talking to people, so asking people to prom was a whole different ballgame for me. But I was, I was curious of where this thought came from, and after doing some research, here's, here's what comes up. Sadie Hawkins was based off a 1930s comic book, okay? Okay. Um, you remember that? Okay. So, old guy here, he remembers the 1930. So it was based off a comic book. And the premise was Sadie Hawkins was the daughter, she was the character, but she was not very attractive. Okay? And so what would happen is her daddy felt so bad for her that he would put on a race every year, and if you were a bachelor, you were forced to have to be in the race. And when they said, go, everybody would tell, all the bachelors would take off running. Now, if Sadie Hawkins caught you, you had to marry her because she would ask for your hand in marriage and you had to say yes, all right? Now, I noticed that the comic book, there were many races that happened, so she must have been really slow or those bachelors were like really, really fast, okay? So, so what I want you to understand is the first shift is, this first concept is the girls ask the guys, okay? This is a really big deal in the culture of Israel because this is how the pursuit would happen. The, the girl would go and ask for the hand in marriage. She would be the one in, in pursuit. Okay? We, we there? 
That's concept number one. Concept number two, there's a theological concept we've got to understand. There's this word that appears called the kinsman redeemer. Okay? Kinsman redeemer. It can be defined as this. It's a blood relative. It's a blood relative who was allowed to buy back or redeem. That's what the word redeem means, is to buy back that which had been tragically lost. Okay? So the kinsman redeemer was the person that, by blood, was a relative, and they were allowed to go and buy back or redeem what you had lost. Typically, this would fall under a couple of things. It, would, it could fall underneath this concept of buying back your land. Okay? So they could buy back your land. They could buy back your freedom. They could give you justice, and they could give you a family. So it worked this way. For instance, buying back land. Land in the Bible, when the children of Israel entered the promised land, every tribe got their own parcel of land except the Levites because they were the priests and they had to be spread out because you couldn't put all the preachers in one place. They had to mix among the people. And so everybody was given this land. So land in Israel is family-owned. It's been there for centuries. Some, some Israelites can trace their plot of land all the way back to Joshua. That's, I can't remember what I did yesterday. They can track their land. Oh, yeah, this was, we were from the tribe of Dan, and this was our land, and this was given by blah, 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 blah. You know, just, they can go off on that. And so this land is yours. It's your family. And when you sold it, you didn't really sell it. Because the only reason that you would sell your land is if you ran into some major financial issues and you couldn't afford it. So you would technically sell your land to get the money to give the person that got your land. But there's what we call the year of Jubilee because every seven years, your debt would be forgiven. Now, that would be incredible if we could go back to that system right now is every seven years, your debts just magically disappear, right? Um, but what would happen is on year seven, your land would be given back. And when it was given back, it was typically all the debts were, were wiped away. You got to start fresh again, okay? So you got your land back. The only way that you could get it back before the seven years is if the kinsman redeemer would come in and handle the transaction for you. And again, they had to be a blood relative. The kinsman redeemer had to have the money to, to make the purchase. And here's the most important piece. They actually had to be willing to do it. So they could have the money, and they can be a blood relative. But if they weren't willing to make the, the money, the transaction, then you just didn't have the land for seven years. Okay? We, we tracking so far? So that's how it worked with the land. That's how the kinsman redeemer worked with land. We're going somewhere with this, I promise. They could also buy back your freedom because you may have had to give up that land and to pay off your debt, you would have to become a slave to work off that debt. Okay, so again, for seven years, you would have to work that debt off. If we go back to Jacob, when Jacob was fallen for Leah and Rachel and they went to Laman and said, hey, I want to marry your daughter. He said, that's fine. If you want her, you've got to work for me for how many years? Seven years, okay? Because that was going to be the year of Jubilee at, at the end of year seven, which we found out he didn't, get, he didn't get what he wanted at the end of seven. Okay, so we have this, we have this buying back your freedom. So if, if you were, the kinsman redeemer could come in and he could provide you with what you needed as a slave that you would be taken care of. He could bring you out of slavery so you wouldn't have to wait the full process. He could also buy back your justice. 
So if there is an eye for an eye, so he would be, be your blood avenger. Something happens to you, you're attacked, you're hurt, you die, you can't speak for yourself. The kinsman redeemer could come in and speak on your behalf and be your blood avenger to get, to get back justice for you. Okay? And the last thing is they could buy back your family. So there is nothing lower on the totem pole in the Old Testament than being a widow without kids. Okay? And this is why. Because when you had daughters, your daughters would get married, and then they would move away. So they couldn't take care of you. Your sons would stay, and they would be responsible for making sure mom's taken care of if something were to happen to dad. Okay? If you didn't have sons, you were out all on your own. This is the early form of Social Security. We're the kids, right? Some of you are still banking on this, right? My kids are going to provide for me for the rest of my life after all I've done for them. So what would happen is if in the situation there were no sons, Ruth has no sons, right? She's a widow. Naomi has no sons. She's a widow. They don't have any, any type of, of money coming in, no, no security, no financial stability, none. What would happen is a kinsman redeemer could come in and marry you and give you that family back and give you a son. And they could redeem everything. They could take the shame back off of you. In this culture, not having a son could actually outcast you from the community. It's pretty, pretty harsh, isn't it? In Deuteronomy 25, it tells us that the brother would take care of the sister-in-law. So um, I don't know if you like your sister-in-law or not, but if we were living back in the, in the, in the times of, of this story and your, your husband passed away, then your brother-in-law will become your husband. I just want you to think about who your brother-in-law is. I was just seeing if there are any kind of reactions of going, no, nah, he's going to be fine. Remember, it's your choice. You have the decision if you want to do it or not. And so there was this, there was this responsibility that you would, you would take care of family to restore their family so that they could have a son and they could have security and, that, and the, the family name would go on. That's concept number two. Here's the last concept. It's the concept of the Emmaus Road. Now, if you go to Israel and use that term Emmaus, I just want to let you know right now, they're going to quickly correct you and tell you that you are botching Hebrew language because apparently it's a mouse. I don't, I, don't, I don't question it. I just go with it. But I'm going to say Emmaus because we're in America and that's what we do. We roll that way. On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, what we have is, is the, resurre- of the crucifixion of Jesus has happened. There are these two guys walking on a road seven miles trip back from Jerusalem to Emmaus. On this road, they're talking about the events that had unfolded in Jerusalem during the Passover, the crucifixion. While they're having it, a stranger walks up. Now, we know that this stranger was really Jesus resurrected. But the Bible says that their eyes were hidden, and they couldn't tell who this was. So so they're walking, and they're having this conversation. This guy kind of butts into the conversation of going, what are you guys talking about? They're like, well, have have you not been? Are you just a visitor? To Jerusalem, like, did you not know of any of the events that just unfolded? This guy who claimed to be the Messiah, the, the Romans killed him. Like, we, we had hopes that he really was God, but, but he died, and the Romans just took care of him. And, and then all of a sudden, the stranger begins to explain to them the concepts from the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. And he begins giving them this Old Testament theology lesson. of well, Didn't the Old Testament say, didn't the Old Testament say, and he's quoting the Old Testament to them. Here's what he's saying, is that the secret to the road of Emmaus is that the Old Testament screams out the story of Jesus. 
It screams out the story of Jesus. When, we, when we're about to read Ruth chapter 3, I want that concept to be in your head that it is screaming the name of Jesus as loud as it possibly can to us, but we can quickly miss it. Because Romans 15, 4, it's not on the screen, but let me read this. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that, that uh, through endurance and through the encouragement uh, of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And this is what Jesus was doing on the road to Emmaus, was he was pointing back, don't forget the scriptures of what it said. You're allowing the circumstances of what you've seen to distract you from what I have said and what you're supposed to have faith in. And their faith was restored. All right, with those three concepts, Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to framework all this. It says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? And he says that, see, he is weaning, uh, weaning barley tonight at the threshing floor. So this is the end of the harvest season, by the way. So he's, he's on the threshing floor. They're getting the rest of the barley ready. It says in verse 3, he says, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to him. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. In other words, hey, wait till he's in a good mood before you ask anything, right? My, my kids do that. Is daddy in a good mood? Why? I got a question. Then no, I'm not. But verse 4 says, but when he lays down, observe the place where he lays. Watch where he lays down. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he'll tell you what to do. And he replied, all that you say, I will do. That's a really strange passage. Anybody with me on that? When I read that, and then I looked up what the Jewish Hebrew um, backstory was behind that, this is what I told the Holy Spirit. I ain't preaching that. We can have a private Bible study and talk about what the uncovering of the feet meant, and we'll just go from there. Uh, just don't even think about it. Just move on. Um, yeah. So in verse 6, thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me your hand over my mouth. So when she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law, Naomi, had commanded her, and when Boaz had eaten and he drunk and his heart was merry, he went and he lied down at the end of the heap of the grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled. And he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a... What's that word? You are a redeemer. So basically what she is doing is proposing to him. See, marriage then was different from marriage now. Marriage now is a governmental thing. You've got to go to the courthouse. You've got to get the papers. You, got, you know what I'm saying? It's a process. And you've got to have a ceremony, and you've got to have a notary, and somebody's got to sign off on this, and then you're good, right? But in biblical times, once you slept with a person, that was your spouse. That was it. Like you can have the ceremony, but the sealing of the deal was the other thing that had to happen, okay? Uncovering the feet. Y'all following me? Okay. I hate teaching uncomfortable things, in case you can't tell. I don't. This is not my forte. Anyway, um, so she's basically proposing to him. And in Exodus 22, it tells us that you've got to pay the price for the bride. Now, he's already paid the price for her, right? 
And, and, and I want to know, like, how hard was he sleeping that he waited about midnight before he realized that there was a woman laying at his feet, right? Because if the covers come off of my feet at all in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm instantly up and trying to figure out who's messing with me, okay? So he says in, in verse 10, it gets even more strange. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, that you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have gone after uh, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen uh, know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a, what's that word? Redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. What he's saying is, listen, I can, I can be the kinsman redeemer, but there's one in your family that is actually closer than I am. And we're talking about Naomi's family. So, so I, I could do this, I, I could marry you, but I gotta, be, I gotta do it the way it's supposed to. I need to go ask the other guy because there's another guy that's in line in front of me. And he says, now it's, it's true I'm your redeemer, yet there's another one nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, because remember to be a kinsman redeemer, you had to be a blood relative, have the money to do it, and you had to be willing to do it. And it says, I'll redeem you. Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lay down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone could recognize, uh, recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing. Hold it out. So he held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. In other words, he's now giving her the best of the best of the food, it's not just falling off the wagon anymore. This relationship has taken another step. She's getting the best of the best, and he sent her home with a lot of food. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fear my daughter? And then she told him all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle, settle this matter today. When he comes back in verse 16, what Naomi is asking is, what are you? She's asking, are you married? Is, is this a done deal? Like, is, are you restored? Have you been bought back? And she said, no. There's another one apparently that's in front of me, and he wants to do the right thing and make sure that that guy doesn't want to have anything to do with me before he takes me on. Now, what does all that have to do? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I read that passage and thought, I think that we could skip chapter 3 and move right on to chapter 4. But that word redeemer keeps popping up. And that kinsman redeemer definition that we learned earlier is vital to understanding this passage. Because we've got to use the concepts. The concept of the Emmaus Road is that all Old Testament points to Jesus. It screams it out. And here in this passage, it is screaming it out so clearly by talking about the Redeemer. Boaz was the Redeemer, but Jesus is a greater Boaz. Boaz, remember we said that theologians believe that his, his mannerisms, his characteristic was that of showing who we're supposed to be. It was modeling who the Father was. And so we got to understand that Jesus is a better Boaz. The book of Ruth is pointing us to Jesus. Because he is our kinsman redeemer. There's a couple of reasons why. Number one, he became our kinsman redeemer by choice. Jesus didn't have to. 
Our sin separated us from God. He didn't have to have a relationship with us. He didn't have to send his son here. He didn't have to give us breath this morning. He made the choice that he would do it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying right before he goes to the cross. And he says, Father, it's not my will, but it's your will. If there's any other way, then I'm good. But if not, I want to be obedient to what you've called me to do. And I'm more than willing to lay my life down for the people. There's a separation, but Jesus by choice, by choice says, I want to redeem my people. Hebrews chapter 2. And I just lost my place. You want to put that on the screen? That's going to be really good. Stick it. Uh-oh. This is a sticky note, right? All right. No, no torn pages. Let's just put that right there. Okay. Anyway, Hebrews. This is a fun day. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now listen to this verse. He says, And he'll deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What did the kinsman redeemer? He could buy you back from slavery. He can give you your freedom back. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, guess who the offspring of Abraham is? We are. And he says this, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Talking about Jesus. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And he says, for, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. What it's saying is that Jesus became just like us. Where Adam failed, Jesus passed. And he's made this decision, this choice, to come and redeem us, his people, and to give us and buy back our freedoms. The second thing that we learn about Jesus as a better Boaz is he became the full price of redemption. Nothing else was needed. In Romans 5, 6, he says, when we were utterly helpless, we couldn't do a thing. It says that Christ came at just the right time and died on the cross for us when there was nothing we can do. And we talk about this a lot, but when we talk about salvation, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save people. We can have the massive lighting shows and haze, and we can get the most dynamic preachers in the world up here on the stage. But they don't save people. That's only an act of the Holy Spirit. And when, we, when we're sitting here talking about Jesus paid the full price, there was absolutely nothing we could do to make things right between us and God. Nothing. And had he not stepped in and said, I'm making this choice and I'm willing to pay the full price, there is no redemption. We're, we would just be hopeless what I want you to understand this morning is Jesus didn't come because he thought we had potential. He did not come because he thought we had potential. He came because he loved us, because we are his children. When he was on the cross, Jesus yelled out these words, it is finished. In Greek, that is tetelestai. And here's the interesting thing in the Greek about that word. We read it at Easter time, and we, we, we do it is finished, and we say tetelestai, but in the Greek language, that is in, that's what we call the perfect tense. Here's what it means. That when he said it is finished, it means that it is currently in that moment active. But it is also active tomorrow and the next day 
and the next day. And so in perfect tense, it speaks of an action that, which was completed in the past with the results that this thing is going to continue on forever and ever and ever. And it goes into the present future. It means that when Jesus yelled, it is finished from the cross, it is still happening today. And you can go ahead and bank on the fact that it will be happening tomorrow too. That our price has been paid and secured. There's never going to be a day where he's going to go, you know what, I've changed my mind, it's all done. Because the price has been paid in full. Here's the other thing. Jesus is a greater Boaz because he can restore our lost inheritance. Jesus has redeemed us and given back our inheritance. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the world's being made. It's beautiful. Everything is going well. Genesis chapter 3 hits. What happens? They decide to do exactly what God asked them not to do, and they took fruit off of the tree, therefore bringing sin into the world. And then everything was corrupted at that point. And then in that moment, Adam forfeited the authority of the earth. The earth was given to him to have full authority to take care of. But in that moment when sin entered, the enemy took the deed back. He took the land deed back. And how do we know this? Because the, when we get into the temptation of Jesus, the devil tells Jesus, hey, if you'll follow me, I'll give you all this. I'll give you all this authority. Now, who is he to be saying that he's going to give Jesus all this authority? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the land deed was taken into the hands of the enemy. And he controls it. So everything gets messed up. He forfeits the title deed of the earth. The enemy has it. But then we get to Revelation chapter 5. Man, we really jumped from Ruth to Revelation. Yes, we did. Revelation scares some of us, doesn't it? It shouldn't. Let me just help. I'll give you an underline. It says that we win in the end. That's what this book's about right here. So whatever Fox News says and CNN or MSNBC or whatever thing you're reading, um, the news right here says that we win as followers of Jesus in the end. So hold true to that. So Revelation chapter 5, he says this. He's talking about the landing. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. By the way, Jesus is sitting on the right hand. The, the word right, anything that's sitting on the right, the right is the strong hand. That is a power of authority. So it's saying that Jesus is sitting in a seat of authority. He's not some weak king that resurrected and went into retirement on a vacation. He went to go reign in authority on the throne watching over us. Amen? Okay, so he says that he, he saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll that was written with, uh, within, and on the back it was sealed with seven seals. Now, now, what is this scroll? This is the land deed of the authority of the earth that Adam and Eve lost that the enemy took. Now, who's holding it? Jesus is. Now, get this. And I saw a mighty angel who was proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Because you and I weren't. We're not. And it says, no one in heaven or, or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And this is John speaking from the Isle of Patmos. He says that there was no one who was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And he said, and, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus, that says that he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, now who's worthy to open it? Jesus. Jesus is. It says, root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6 says this, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
Okay, we're talking about crucified Jesus. And though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, this is why people don't like reading Revelation because now it got weird again. But so was Ruth chapter 3. But I'd rather preach this than Ruth chapter 3. It says, so with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, it sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The enemy came and got the scroll. And it says, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, our prayers. And it said, and they sing a new song. And they said this, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people, you redeemed them, you bought them back, for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And listen to this verse, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He, he, all that says this, where Adam forfeited, Jesus said, I have taken back the land deed. It is mine. The check is in escrow, and we're going to cash that bad boy, and this is all going to be done. Amen. He has the authority. If he didn't do that, we don't have a relationship with him because we haven't been brought back. But he's paid a price, and we that inheritance that we lost, he has given back. That's why we walk in the authority of the gospel because of the blood of Jesus. Okay? So he says that Jesus is the only one that is worthy enough to open this land deed and to break the seal on the scroll. So he restores our lost inheritance. He also frees us from slavery of sin. He frees us because there's nobody worthy to open a scroll. And there's going to be nobody that's worthy to, to, re to redeem us or to free us from our sin. We were born sinners. Our parents didn't teach us, hey, here's how you hit somebody. Here's how you argue. Here's how you talk back. I mean, if your parents did, that's a whole different thing that we probably should talk about later. But, but our parents were teaching us, be kind, share. Don't take that from somebody. We don't steal, right? Our, our parents, why are they teaching us not to do these things? Because it's ingrained that this is what we do. Given the right moment, we'll cut somebody off in traffic. Given the right moment, when somebody cuts us off in traffic, hopefully your brain processes, do I have a Together Church sticker on the back of my car? <laughs> because our inclination is to do wrong. I was asking a group of students this other day in a classroom. I said, if I wrote all the answers to the test on the board and you're taking the test, and I said, hey, by the way, I forgot I wrote the answers on the, te the test on the board. Just don't look at the board. Keep your head down and take your test. Now, how many of you are going to look? They're like, I would never do such. I was like, every one of you are liars. Every one of you in here are liars. Now, let me ask you again, how many of you would look? And 99% of the, the hands went up. I said, why? I mean, I'd be tempted to look at it because the answers are right there. It's because our inclination is to do what we're not supposed to. Right? And so, it doesn't excuse it, it just explains it. And so, we love to look at other people's sins differently from how we look at ours, don't we? And we'll see what somebody else does, and we're like, I would never do such. I would never copy the answers off the board. Right. 
Let me, let me just do a poll real quick. Through school, from K, let's just go to K-4, just to give you some extra. From K-4 all the way through however long your tenure was, who cheated in school at some point? Okay, just making sure. If you didn't, good for you. Good for you. The rest of us appreciate you because we probably copied off your paper. So thank you. But Romans 7 says that although I, I want to do good, evil is always like right there in my spirit. Like I try to do things and I do things that I don't want to do. It's, it's a constant struggle because we have been enslaved to sin. This is why we can so easily look at what other people do and try to justify what it is that we do. I read this quote this week and thought it was incredible. But it says the Bible was never meant to be used as a pair of binoculars. It, but instead it's, it's to be used as a mirror to look back at ourselves. Not for us to look at what other people are doing wrong, but to, to really mirror back and like, what is, what is going on here? What do I need to work on here? But Jesus says, we were slaves to sin, but thanks to our kinsman redeemer, he has loosened our bondage. Because our desires as a follower of Jesus is, or is to please him, to please the Father in everything that we do. And that's what we strive to, to do. Here's the last thing, and this is the best thing but he gives us a new relationship and a new future. He, when the kinsman redeemer steps in, Jesus gives us this new relationship and new future. The Bible says this, that you and I were enemies of God. Like you don't want to be on that side. But he says that we were enemies of God. We were born like this. We didn't even get to choose teams. It was just a team that we were born into. But through our kinsman redeemer, Jesus said, you can have a relationship with me because we have brought you back into the family. You have all the rights and the inheritance that comes with that. You have a brand new identity. In John chapter 1, he says this, that all who receive him and believe in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. Children born of God. And all we had to do was repent in belief and confess to him that he was Savior. That's all we had to do. And he has restored our relationship with him. Romans chapter 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are his heirs. We're heirs of God and we're co-heirs with Jesus. That if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus is a greater redeemer than Boaz. Boaz, great guy. But all Boaz is doing is exactly what we should be doing, and that is pointing to Jesus. And he says that there's a choice, that Jesus made a choice to be our kinsman redeemer. And when he did, he didn't do it halfway. He gave a full price and paid more than enough, if you'll read that in Ephesians. And then he restores this lost inheritance. Everything that we lost, he gave back to us. And then the very thing that kept us enslaved, he frees us. And once we're free, we have a relationship with God and we have a new future. When a kinsman redeemer would take a wife, she got the relationship and the property. She got the full inheritance. As great as Boaz was, there's one greater whose name is Jesus, and he's done all of that, all of that for us. My, my prayer for you this morning 
is number one, that you would, you would recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Because when you, when you can recognize that, that he's done those things, he, he's gone that distance just so that we could have relationship with him. And we, we gather in this place celebrating those things, that we are co-heirs with Jesus. That we, when we speak, we speak in the name of Jesus and we speak with authority. That's why we pray the way we do. We don't pray with earthly tongues. We, we pray with the words of the heavens. Because when we pray, we pray with authority and we get that authority from the cross of Jesus. So I want to pray for you this morning. If, you've, if you have no relationship with him, I want you to know that whatever you've been trying to fix in your life, whatever has been broken, it just seems like it will not get put back together. If Jesus sitting in the middle of it, you're just spinning around nonstop. But there's one that wants to save you this morning because he's paid an ultimate price for you and his love for you. He says that, that nothing will ever separate you from his love. So I want to pray for you this morning. If, if you've never taken those steps to follow Jesus, it's a very simple just right there we are, just ask him, say, hey, Jesus, save me. Just save me. I confess my sins, but just save me. And if that's your declaration this morning, we want to talk to you. We want to help you, guide you in those next steps. If you'll go to our welcome desk, we want to help get you connected and help you take the next steps. Let's, let's pray as we, we finish this morning in worship. Father, thank you for being our Redeemer. We were absolutely hopeless, drowning. But God, it, it wasn't you that just threw a life raft out to us. You jumped in the water, went down to the bottom, pulled us up, and gave us new breath. And I just pray in these moments that your spirit would move, that you'd bring conviction where it needs to be brought, and that lives would be changed here this morning, that we would draw closer to you. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.